Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What's up, Fungal Associates? Welcome to Completely Arbitrary, the podcast about trees and other related topics. I am one of your hosts. My name is Alex Croson. Hello, I'm Casey Clapp, also a host here today. I know you're expecting someone else. There's mm. generally uh, Casey's here. I'm going to fill in today. You're Casey 2. I'm Casey 2. I'm Robot Casey. Have you ever seen the movie uh, Multiplicity, I think it's called? I have not. With that guy, Beetlejuice, who, oh, who played Beetlejuice. Ooh, um, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, He's the famous guy. guy who's in the drum uh, the drum one. Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton, the famous. Yeah. He seems like, I don't know if he's been canceled, but he's a great actor. I don't think he has been. Um, yeah, he, Multiplicity. Yeah, okay. He gets kind of drafted for this scientific program that mm-hmm. cl- clones you. Ah, uh, yeah. Because he is like a typical 90s tv dad he yeah. hates his wife mm. and he just wants some time alone i see so he clones himself but he's very busy at work too casey oh. so you're gonna need two clones yeah and I then see. He, he ends up with like four or five and they all have different sort of defects because it's uh-huh. like inbreeding hey yeah i know exactly what you mean you know uh uh speaking of uh, being canceled there's a show uh, you know the Mike and, or M- Morty, uh, uh, Jim and Morty, Frank, Frank and Morty, uh, Rick and Morty, Rick and Morty, Richard and Morty. They, uh, the guy who invented that show, I think he does the voice of the titular Morty. Yeah, that's uh, Justin that Roiland. Weird, Justin Roiland. Justin Roiland made a show way back when. <gasps> yes, called the Cosby's. Yes, House of Cosby's. I've seen this. Yeah, uh, they had the same thing where he would he would clone a Cosby, but it would yeah. come out with some different. <laughs> weird attribute and then every 10th cosby he cloned it was a super cosby <laughs> it was like data analysis cosby's the first one it was like we must solve the world uh, what they made like five episodes and then the last one they had a cease and desist from the cosby's wow and then they just made like a really scribbly thing to like close out the story and be like fuck bill cosby <laughs> that's so funny it was it was hilarious i i think a, that was a, a late college Late college thing. That yeah. was definitely canceled in every regard, except for Justin. He yeah. wasn't canceled. He did a good job. Yeah. He mm-hmm. he went on to do uh, very popular things yeah. with Dan Harmon, my, the creator of Community. Yeah. They co-created Rick and, Rick and Morty. Good for them, honestly. I love his voice. I think his voice is really funny. Yeah. Anyway. Casey, speaking of co-creating, let's co-create an episode of Completely Arbitrary oh, right about right. now. This week, as we do every week, we're talking about a tree. And this tree is pretty special. It is. This is this is a fun one. It's uh this is the Andean and hmm, this is the Andean paper tree. Yes. Casey, let's imagine that you and I All right, all right. We have our oxygen masks mm-hmm. 
and we are hiking the hills of the Andes. The mountains of the Andes, Alex. <laughs> I call them mega hills. Yeah, it's a good it's a good term. Uh, and we come across some Andean paper trees. We feel very blessed and grateful because they're mm-hmm. so rare and high up. Kind, yeah, yeah. And uh, Casey, let's ID this tree. <sighs> All right, Alex. This is what we're going to do is cover a. We're going to cover a species, but there's about 20 different species, and they're all in the genus Polylepis, and this is Polylepis racemosa is the one we're going to do today. Racemosa. Yes. Now, racemosa means that its flowers are in a raceme. Uh, generally speaking, that's what that's referring to. Okay. Uh, a raceme being a, uh, a kind of long central stem with flowers coming off of it, kind of alternating or rotating around. Oh, yeah. This is similar maybe to a, a catkin, but different. Uh, yeah, exactly. Catkins, they're really tightly packed and very, very small. And usually the flowers are so reduced where they just are kind of like the bare minimum. You know, it's like they have that one part that does that one thing. Everything else is forgotten. A raceme, the flowers would still be almost full big flowers with sepals and petals and all the different parts inside. And this is a hermaphroditic flower, so it has both parts inside of it. So it's uh, essentially a perfect flower. Like a magnolia. Precisely, Alex. Casey, I have a bit of an on-topic slash off-topic question. All right, let's start with the off-topic portion. (laughs) Here we go. So flowers that grow on trees, Uh can you breed like a garden flower Mm. out of a flower that grows on a tree like if i were to take a jacaranda yeah flower Uh uh-huh and like can i propagate that in my garden and make like a jacaranda shrub ah not not really you would be it would you could you could take it and you could uh you could make it into a another thing you could grow it graft it onto something or uh just Stick it in like root hormone and then have it grow new roots. Yeah. That would work, but it would just become a new tree. Oh, okay. It would, you could keep it as a shrub, but you could also, there's sometimes you can get species varieties that you can, that are very small for whatever reason, or they're dwarf or they just don't get very big for whatever, yeah. whatever thing. So you could, you could do that and you could breed it into this, you know, find the genes and like just select for the ones that are really small. But okay. uh, it sounds like what you're talking about is like almost evolved from a tree to a shrub yeah. or a uh, or a, an herb of some sort. Yeah, like a rose bush. Yeah. But like imagine if roses naturally grew on the rose tree. Yeah, I, I don't think so without changing like chromosomes and genes in a pretty intense way. Well, I am looking for a new hobby. Hey, honestly, try it out. Get Let's into see what you get to. <laughs> genetic yeah. manipulation. That'd be amazing. What's that? What's that? What's that science called? Uh, um, uh, genealogy. Genealogy. No, I'm sorry. I, I was hoping you were going to know that genealogy is not that. It's humans. Yes, it is. It's like just your your ancestors. Yeah. Um, what is it? I guess it's just genetics in, okay. in a larger sense. Botanical genetics. Yeah, or, uh, uh, bioengineering mm. in a way where you. Oh, sure. You doing that kind of thing? Okay. And Anyway. Hey, bioengineering, speaking of multiplicity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's exactly what it is. This is a multipli- multiplicitous uh, wow. episode. <laughs> Multiplitoris. Either pronunciation yeah, yeah, is yeah. fine. I, yeah. It's exactly like, it's like fungi and fungi. Uh, yeah. It's like fungi and fungi. <laughs> Casey, uh, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Let's let's continue talking about the Andean paper <laughs> okay. tree. Okay. So the Andean paper tree, uh, the one that we're talking about, it actually has a uh, an indigenous name, and it is Kiwinya. 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 Wonderful. Q U E U N with a little uh, tilde over the top of it. 
I'm going to look this up. A. Sounds good. But it's pronounced Q-I-W-I-N-A with the little tilde over the top of the N, so it has a nya. How do you spell this again? Uh, you're looking for Q-U-E-U-N with a tilde A. Q-U-E-U-N with a tilde A. Kayunya. Kayunya, no. Kayunya? No, I think it's pronounced Kiwenya. There's no E between the U and the N. Uh, E-U-N. All right, that's fair. Well, the uh, uh, it, I, w- the notes that I found actually have it spelled uh, Q-I-W-I-N with the tilde A, uh, and that is how they pronounce it in the native language of yeah. Quechua. All right. Well, I guess I don't speak yeah. that language. I just speak Spanish. That's very fair. I don't speak Spanish, so I saw the pronunciation in the, the native language, mm. so I assumed that it was just a Spanish spelling of the native pronunciation. I see. So that's where I got my Q from i should i also don't Whoops. i also don't uh speak spanish really <laughs> well either way that's the that's the the name of the tree Peunia. in the the either the spanish uh or the uh the native quechua or in the latin polylepis racemosa um there also is uh, uh the spanish because they call it the andean paper tree all of these different species again there's 20 different species yeah. they would call it the arbor del papel Ooh. So that's the the, pa- the tree of paper. Sure. It's just kind of fun. Well, can, are we getting into the paper aspect of this tree? Is, nah, it, is it the bark? Nah, it's, it is the bark. So that it, it's, it has like red bark and it, sh- it peels off, kind of similar to the madrone. But while it peels, um, the big thing, the big difference is that the madrone, it would kind of peel off and kind of go away mm-hmm. after time. This, the peels kind of stay on top of each other. So it looks like a really Ooh. big, like kind of fluffed, peely bark where it looks really really kind of big and extremely fancy looking wow yeah it's really gorgeous and the 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 wood is very very strong and kind of sinewy so it has this uh this like hard look to it you know it looks like muscles wow it's really super stupendously gorgeous and it grows at the highest elevations like i mean just beyond imagination high and this is kind of the thing that always makes me kind of like kind of really like take a second be like wait a second wait a second how high and everything is in meters so i had to do a lot of calculations the highest recorded one that i have found so far Uh is uh one of our species i believe the um quenya the polyepis racemosa which is at sixteen thousand seventy six feet Say that again, 16,000? Thousand. A mile is like 5,250 or something Whoa. like that. I, I don't, don't, it's a little bit more. Yeah. But aside, suffice it to say, every 5,000 feet uh, is essentially nearly a mile. This thing's three miles high. It's three miles high. Or wow. maybe just this side of three miles high. That's incredible. The, uh, that is what makes this tree like really kind of unique and special. And its leaves are, are very, very short. They're actually, I would call them tripinnate, where they come out and then their, their petiole splits uh, at the leaf blade into three different leaflets. Ooh, it's one like terminal. a three-needle pine. Yeah, but kind with of. broad leaves. Yeah, and they just come out and they just go one left, one to the right, one straight out. Wow. And they're crenate, so they have a, a really beautiful kind of small little, little circles or half circles all around the edge of them so they look very scalloped is another good descriptor i think that's their margin is little little scalloped edges exactly uh they're also would you also call these lanceolate um yes the leaflets are lanceolate correct yeah and so the the little leaves are really dark green they're alternately uh arranged along the twig but they're usually kind of pushed out at the end so it's hard to tell their alternations but they're in the rose family, so they are 
they're kind of a weird a weird rose family relative most things in the rose family like cherries and plums uh asters, the rose itself mm-hmm. millions and millions of other plants uh individuals probably thousands or hundreds of other families or genre sure uh, not families just genre they are usually pollinated by insects where they have those big beautiful flowers yeah insects would come get a little little nectar here a little nectar there get a bunch of stuff on them and then go to the next and then they would fertilize and pollinate all these plants can i maybe guess where this is going yes this this tree the keunia yeah is not pollinated by insects That's exactly right is it pollinated by birds not birds is it pollinated by some sort of woodland little critter not a woodland critter is it pollinated by the wind that is right bing, 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 <laughs> and the air is so thin up there that it probably floats forever it very well may yeah but that's actually kind of the thing uh is that it doesn't it could oh but yeah. it does not don't know why uh, you, you could be right, but that's kind of another interesting thing about this. We're yeah. going to kind of get into that a little bit more, but suffice it to say the pollen is like, this is a wind pollinated species in a family dominated by plants. And probably it has come from oh. a lineage of plants that has always been insect pollinated. Okay. So that's why it's pollen is so heavy, but it has oh. been grown up there where maybe there's fewer insects or for whatever reason. Yeah. And it, it's pollen is really still heavy and its flowers are reduced to not having much at all. They don't get insects. They don't do anything. They just kind of let everything go to the wind. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which is very curious. And it comes into our later conversation of like how these trees are growing way up where they're growing. And yeah. Why they're not growing more everywhere yeah. or at least further down or maybe further um larger uh kind of forests right now they're just like these small little patches and zones you know i have a follow-up question about wind pollination yes yeah, go is wind pollination less effective overall than insect mm. pollination i don't think so okay it would be or like lower statistics you yeah. know yeah I don't think so. I think generally it is, it's kind of how you go about it. Where if you have a, a million plant or a million flowers all over the place, mm-hmm. they just let all of their pollen go to the wind. Okay. Then you're bound to have most of them catch something. Okay. But if you are, if you have fewer flowers and you put more effort into saying, I, I have fewer flowers, but I want each single one, every single one to get pollinated, then insects are more effective at, at say, fewer because they'll spend their entire day around a, a whole tree and they'll go to every single flower over the course of a day. It's kind of curious. It's, not, it's not, It reminds me of like how, is it like whales? Some species of whale just like, uh, yeah. they reproduce by just basically like, sorry everyone, ejaculating into the ocean <laughs> and then all the other whales just kind of like swim in it and uh, get kind pregnant. of i don't think that's exactly right for whales but that, <laughs> well of like, course it's not exactly right yeah <laughs> it's like well alex i don't want to say no but how can i let you down nicely um a lot of fish do what yeah, you're talking about yeah. where they just essentially they get into a giant big uh school and then they just go wow and they just let it all loose and then wow. everyone's just swimming through so that's just a crapshoot of like i hope mine goes somewhere what a scene, man. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty intense. I, I wouldn't want to, you know, go into that and be like, hey, you guys, this is pretty dirty, you know? <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like the fish would just be like, bro, you got to get out of here. We call that the eye of the storm. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, this, I, I think you're right. That it's uh, The term that I think you might be looking for is like a, what is it? It's K-reproductive and N-reproductive. Hmm. There's two different styles. Essentially, it is 
reproduction where you just make millions of of babies and you just let them all go. You don't take care of them. You just hope they all survive. Yeah. Versus having way fewer, but putting a lot of energy and effort into ensuring that one or those few survive. And that Casey, that's R and K. Thank you. R and K where R would be fewer with lots of resource allocation. And then K would be many, many, many more, but with almost no resource allocation. I'm so sorry for the tangent, but hey, I, that's okay. this I've is good got stuff. a, I've got a curiosity about me today. That's why we call you whiskers. Oh, <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. So yeah, this, um, so these, this tree being a wind pollinated tree, it probably takes more of that K strategy where it's like, go out there. Good luck. I'm going to depend on this to just work, but I'm going to allocate my tree resources to other things. Yeah. I'm not going to put the effort to have big flowers or to have, you know, all these things that make nectar and get insects to come to me. I'm just going to hope that it works. I see. And clearly it has because these trees have evolved not only one species, not only in one area, but 20 or more species across the entire Andes mountains of South America from Bolivia and Chile all the way up through Argentina and Colombia. It's very impressive. It's very impressive. And it's always at the top of these mountains, at the highest elevation. So what you get with that is the leaves are really thick and rough. They are evergreen. They don't go away. They'll sit there. They're covered in like a nice waxy bit. Mm. They have little tiny hairs sometimes around them on the bottom to help make sure everything's warm as close as it can be. And what that does is it basically makes sure that it it creates a little tiny air space. Are you familiar with the idea of like a sweater? (laughs) Yeah, I've got a few of those. Okay, okay. So uh, when you have all these little hairs, and this is something that a lot of high elevation, high alpine plants will do, is they will stay keep their leaves small the top will be really waxy and it'll be covered on the bottom or on the stem or however they need to with really teeny tiny little hairs oh wow and that basically acts like the same as you know hair from anything else where it traps just a teeny amount of air really close to the leaf that teeny amount of air stays just a micro bit warmer than the air that's just outside of it Interesting. So it's just like the uh, having your uh, wearing a sweater. All you're doing is creating this dead air space between you and the outside. Okay. And that air gets warmed by your body. That warm air doesn't escape, and it kind of puts this little blanket all around you of warmer air just by smidge. Wow, that's 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 really cool. I, is this the first tree we talked about that does that? Ooh. Surely no. Doesn't magnol- magnolia has pubescence yeah. on the bottom, but it, it's, yeah, it doesn't but it's, really serve that same purpose. No, yeah, exactly. I think this is the, one of the only only trees that has this because we haven't really talked about too many high alpine species, and most of the time you would see this in uh, either drier habitats in like desert trees, mm-hmm. or you'd see that in this high alpine area, but most of these trees at, at high alpine would be either deciduous, ever, or, I'm sorry, deciduous broadleaf trees yeah. or they would be evergreen coniferous trees where they kind of take on more of a, uh, a waxy coating kind of technique as opposed to these little tiny hairs and this tree does kind of both of that the hairs are just on the bottom they're kind of a little bit along the stem but they're not like a huge thing but i would say if you're looking to try to find examples of this look for the little tiny cushion plants are what they're called hmm. they're like little herbaceous plants that grow at these high elevation areas but they look like cushions like little little blobs of plant growing in, you know, maybe in a rock crevice or something. Yeah. Those will have this to to the T. Okay. And is this, is this tree, um, uh, um, deciduous? 
It is not. Okay. Yeah. These are evergreen trees. Wow. And the thing is, these guys grow really high up. Like, we saw, we already talked about this, but let me give you a couple, a couple numbers. Yes, please. The, uh, the species Patua, or, or Pauta, which would be Polylepis Pauta, P-A-U-T-A, it grows at an elevation range from 3,500 to 3,700 meters, which is essentially forever up into the sky. <laughs> it, the, a meter is generally a little bit more than three feet. <laughs> So you're, you're you're multiplying all these numbers by three, and you're getting a rough general estimate of yeah, what they are. Yeah. And then the uh, uh, Polyepis sericea goes four thousand two hundred to forty two. Wow, actually, it's exactly the same. I didn't notice that when I was looking at this. Their average elevation is uh, the elevation range is forty two hundred thirty to forty two hundred thirty. Whoa! <laughs> so they they're right there, nowhere else. <laughs> but others go all the way up to four thousand five hundred meters i can't even in the sky that's insane it's insane it's absolutely absolutely mind-blowing four what is it four thousand four thousand five hundred sixty five meters that's roughly four uh thirteen point five uh thousand feet yeah which is insane mm. our our mount hood is just under twelve thousand feet tall wow so that that grows higher than the peak of our highest mountain in the entire state that's very cool and that's where these trees grow that is what creates the tree line alex there's still mountain up above them they just can't grow up there oh wow yeah the and andes are fucking tall the andes are huge they're mind-blowingly huge mountains yeah and what is interesting is that they're also in a tropical area for the most part as you go further south they actually become more of a temperate region than mm. anything else they are approaching more the southern latitudes where they are matching what we have up here okay but what's curious is that they have a tree line which is, they call it the natural tree line. Are you familiar with the term? I think so. A tree line is just where the trees on a, on a mountain stop growing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there is, so there's a couple different terms. There's timber line, which is the spot where you stop getting like a full forest cover. Where if you're looking at a mountainside mm. and you just see like, you know, a soft covering of forest from afar. Yeah. When you see it go up and all of a sudden the tree line or the, the timber line stops, but you still see like a speck of a tree here, tree there, tree yeah. there. Timber line is where the forest stops tree line is where individual oh. trees or small groups of trees no longer grow that's okay. that line interesting good distinction yeah i never really gave it too much of a too much of a thought but it is there there is this this difference and this also happens as you go up to the poles or down to the poles mm -hmm. depending on your perspective as you are going the further and further north you get you have the same kind of um of climactic conditions rather yeah i'm gonna say climactic conditions that you'd get as you go way up to the top of a mountain okay. where essentially it gets really cold you get a lot more snow and you get a smaller high temperatures lower high temperatures does that make okay. sense yeah yeah, yeah 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 you just get a lot of a lot more cold ass days essentially yeah, the whole thing shifted down yeah exactly so that is uh that's kind of the interesting thing where if you go north or south towards the poles you get this tree line you get a timberline effect mm -hmm. as you go up to the highest elevations you also get this timberline tree line effect and 
when I started doing research for this, which I always love to happen, uh, you know what, Alex, before we go any further, yeah. the only reason we're covering this tree is because one of our fungal associates <laughs> recommended that this tree be in the uh, Tournament of Champion Trees. That's right. Do you have their name? Um, I do. We can find it in a second, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll find it while you talk. Uh, so we ended up uh, looking into, I ended up looking into this tree, and then we had to disqualify it because A, there was no species that they recommended, so I couldn't say which one. And there also is, uh, there was so little information that I could find in like a quick basis, but the trees appeared so interesting I had to just keep on looking. Yeah. So that's why we're doing it now because it's like, hey, if this isn't making the champion uh, tournament of champion trees, at the minimum, this is going to get an entire episode so we can dive into what are they talking about? These are the highest elevation trees in the entire world. Mm. Pff, whatever. Google, Google, Google. Oh my God. <laughs> and we, you had never, had you heard of these trees no, before? I haven't, no. Uh, Alyssa Killingsworth. Alyssa Killingsworth. Thank was you. Was the person, for the fungal this. associate, who sent us the the tip off? Yeah. So the big thing that I kind of want to discuss today yeah. is the concept of this this tree line. Why do they happen, Alex? Is the big question. Mm. What is the what are the causes that make it so the trees can no longer colonize an area? Second thing, as I was doing research on this tree, which I knew from almost nothing, I knew the species, I knew that it grew high in the Andes, I wanted to do some, you know, do some thinking about it, figure out what it is. The big thing that I found, they're amazingly endangered trees. Oh, they're, shoot. Their habitat. If you go to the Google and you look them up, you go to polylepiswikipedia.com slash polylepiswikipedia.com, <laughs> uh -huh. you will find that there's 20-some species and several of them just don't have a page at all. Wow. They're, they're the red links. They just say, this page does not exist. Yeah. But if you click on it, you can make this page. Then there's the blue ones. There's maybe two or three that have a, even a relative amount of information. And I'm pretty sure that's because they've been planted in Canada or in the Royal Botanic Gardens or something wow. like that. So someone actually has looked at them and said, hey, well, actually, these will grow at lower elevations, just at maybe higher latitudes, and they'll do just fine. But then... All the other ones, you click on the on the thing, and all it says is, uh, this tree grows in the high altitudes of the Andes. It is endangered due to habitat loss. Next one. This grows in the high Andes over here. Mm. It is probably endangered because of habitat loss. So on and so on and so on and so on for almost, I think, 10 or 15 of these species. Wow. So I'm like, what is happening here? Why why are these trees so like endangered what what is going on at thirteen thousand feet in the Andes that people are or that the habitat's just going away? The first thing you think of is well maybe it's maybe it's climate change because I know down in the uh, the white mountains of California, for example, or any of the inner inner mountain uh, gigantic ranges that are also thirteen fourteen thousand feet high, mm -hmm. you have a species of tree growing there that we've covered, the Intermountain Bristlecone Pine. Yeah. Or the uh, Pinion Pine. Both those trees are growing there. And as climate changes and things get hotter from below, the, re the refuge is no longer there. The trees have gone all the way up to the top of the coolest mountains. Wow. They cannot go any further. This is not the case for the Andean oh. paper trees. There's still mountain above them that they could go. They are not at the tippy top peak of all the Andy mountains. Hmm. So why are they not growing up? Why are they not slowly migrating up as a lot of plants are doing nowadays, as a lot of trees are doing with climate change? Casey, we're going to explore that question. We got to take a break. All right. All right. We'll be right back with more Completely Arbitrary. 
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back to Completely Arbitrary. Today we're talking the Andean paper tree. Polylepis uh-huh. is the or lepis. Yeah. If you're nasty. <laughs> if you're nasty, nasty. Is the genus? Correct. Okay. Racemosa is the specific epithet, the species together being Polylepis racemosa. Racemosa. Yes, sir. So... Like a NASCAR brunch cocktail, uh, a racemosa. Yeah. The more of a story is, we're talking about a tree, we're not talking about racing nor drinking. Yes. The... Although we may be talking about racing in an evolutionary sense as to race away ah. from the Earth's heating. <laughs> you, we could be. But, Alex, it turns uh-huh. out, perhaps not. Okay. So the big thing, I know, no, no, I led you there. You, 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 I threw the ball up and you hit it like a champion hitter of yeah, balls. I was just standing right in front of a wall. Exactly. And I, I didn't tell you the wall was there. Yeah. And it bounced back and hit me in the face. So, well, that's the big thing. That is the big question here is all the research that I've been looking at. I yeah. found one, uh, one article that I thought was very interesting. And I saw one guy who just kept coming back all all the time and i don't i don't know where why this person decided to do it but his name is michael kessler from the university of zurich okay um i don't know if he's still there i haven't uh i decided to just not look into him too much just look into the tree sure but he's written so many papers about the andean paper tree Hmm. that it is that he's clearly one of the the experts in it wow and one of the papers he wrote was called The Polylepis Problem. Where do we stand? And this came out, I think, in 2002. Hmm. So and it's the polylepis problem. There's quotes to it, right? Okay. Uh, because it's not like there's a problem with them. But the big problem, the, the, the reason that he calls it that is that there is there's some – no one can quite figure out why the polylepis tree grows where it does. Hmm. Do you remember how I told you about the timberline and the tree line and all that, right? Yes. So there's what they call the natural tree line in the Andes where you just have trees growing, they're growing, they're growing. Okay, now there's no more trees. Keep going a little bit higher up and then you get these bands and these groves of polylepis. Oh, this is outside the tree line. This is above the tree line. Wow. It's living on the frontier. It is way out there on the frontier. That's exactly right. Wow. So they're like... Interesting. Yeah. Oh, and so many other people, Alex, over the last hundred years have said the same exact thing. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. Why? Why are these trees up here? What's different? And so famously in the Andes, there are... People who for millennia have lived up at these high elevation areas. Yeah. The quintessential example is the Inca 
yes in peru where they live way up at elevations higher than mount hood in oregon right here than any of our other mountains uh maybe eh, maybe rainier because that's like what fourteen thousand feet something like that mm. anyway more of a story is um, people have been up around these trees for the longest time. So a bunch of people have said, well, here, here's why the, these trees have been um, growing up here and they're just, they're fancy trees for whatever reason. They have this, they have that. And then one guy, I think in the 1950s, um, uh, Ellenberg is his name. He basically said, I think that the trees are growing the way they're growing up here beyond the natural tree line because of Human interactions over the last several million or several thousand years. Human interactions with the paper tree? Yes. Okay. Where either A, they would cut it down for fuel, or they'd cut it down because the wood's very strong. It grows really slowly, like 100 years per inch of wood. Whoa. Yeah, it's crazy. And I I have to push back a little bit to some of these things. Like, there's a lot of, um, like atlas obscura and like travel over here and like look at these cool trees fairy tale forests and they're always like these are the slowest growing trees in the world and i'm like whatever you don't know what you're talking about don't bristlecone pine grow extremely slow exactly and then so do any other tree that grows in these same kinds of conditions i see so any tree that grows up at the highest elevation it could be a pinion it could be an oak it could be almost any tree that can take that high elevation really harsh habitat will grow that slow it's gonna grow that slow okay yeah. just so so it's happens, one of the slowest growing yeah exactly and they also it's depending on where it is sometimes it doesn't even grow as a tree and this was a question i wanted hmm. to pose to you alex because i find you to be my philosophical equal in tree matters <laughs> wow you uh okay <laughs> if you were nice to choice. walk hey thank you thanks for joining me here <laughs> my guest today is alex croson a philosophical expert on trees yes uh, Alex, you're walking into a forest. Okay? Uh-huh. Now, that forest is at lower elevations, could be 120, 140 feet tall. Mm, okay, you understand? The f- the trees in that forest? Correct. Okay. Now, Alex, <laughs> as you walk up in elevation... Yes, Casey? This forest gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Oh. Now, the trees, the species may change. Uh, the genus is still the same. It's Polyepis. Uh, down here, Sericea. Over here, Seguea. Over here... Resimosa. Okay. Now, of course, as you get to the higher elevation, the trees become smaller and smaller and more shrub-like. However, uh. at lower elevations, they, in fact, were trees. Now, are you going to be doing this voice for the rest of the episode? <laughs> <laughs> Only until the question comes, Alex. The oh, question okay. is, the question oh, is, yes, the question. if you were walking in a forest, quote-unquote, of trees, yeah. yet they were only six or eight feet tall, would you count that as a forest? Or would you say this is a shrubland? Oh, shrubland. A shrubland of miniature trees or a forest of small trees or a forest of big shrubs? Can you call that a forest? I, here's my answer, Casey. I'm so glad you asked this question. I knew you needed it. Yeah. I sent it to your people before so you could prepare. <laughs> well, don't tell people that. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I think uh, six to eight feet. I can almost see over that forest. Yeah. To me, I don't I don't necessarily see that as a forest. All right. That's fair. I would I would agree. 
And it, Shrubland. Yeah, it's always kind of these things like you can go to the highest elevation where bristlecone pine would grow or a juniper. Yeah. And it would grow kind of in a weird shrub like fashion yeah. because it just gets pummeled every year by everything. Yeah. So I was I just wanted to see your opinion on that because I think I would agree. But at the same time, I still like to go up there and I'm like, wow, look at this polylepis tree, even though it's like four feet tall, completely gnarled and like smashed into the side of a mountain by snow and ice and wind. I'd still be like, yeah, yeah. I'm going to give you credit. I'm going to, I'm going to elevate you to tree because you're so elevated yourself. Wow, sick. Now, <laughs> we may have you may have answered this already, but is there a reason that those trees would be growing shorter at higher ele- elevations? Yeah, essentially, we'll we'll take a step back and we'll talk about the biophysical environment of tree lines, okay. if you will. So, a tree line is generally regulated by the the average air temperature of that area as well as the average soil temperature of that area okay so the colder it gets the fewer trees you're going to find exactly okay. and if the air temperature does not stay at a certain uh a certain temperature for a certain period of time oh then the trees essentially won't grow and if they can't grow they're just going to die okay then they're not going to get any bigger so if a tree is uh growing at that just they're towing that line, then they can't get very tall because of mainly two reasons. One, they're covered in snow 99% of the year. Mm. When the snow finally does melt, they're just like, go! And they grow as quickly as they can, which is kind of like a slug running as fast as it can. Yeah. And they're like, okay, great. That slug, they, it did it. It's hours up. It has made it six feet. Uh, great. Good job, slug. And then they it, sleep for another nine months. Exactly. And they just kind of sit there and photosynthesize. So one, uh, it, this paper, I literally read, it's, Point uh, three point one, like section three point one, mm-hmm. biophysical elements of tree lines. Um, it's in a paper that I that I found, and it is called a review of modern tree line migration, the factors controlling it, and the implications for carbon storage. Absolutely riveting reading, Alex. Uh, now, <laughs> I couldn't tell if you were being sarcastic because this sounds about on par with the sorts of things you love reading, yeah, to me at least. It is. It's kind of on par. It's, yeah. But it's it's not the most interesting thing, but it's sure. it's, it's way more interesting because they it's a literature review where they, they don't do any of the work. They just tell all the findings of all the work oh that sounds more interesting yeah, way more interesting than reading all the all the other things in my opinion oh that's so, what a review yeah. is it, it yeah. presents the findings of other research yeah a literature review essentially okay. where they're like it's is if you're doing research a literature review is a great spot because a they've done all the review for you they say hey here is the state of the science right now here's here's all we got on this one subject that's cool at least if it's a good literature review they they really dive into every single possibility of, of what could be considered in that review. Are those released like annually? Oh, no, no, no. This is this would be a scientific paper in and of itself. So it'd be like, okay. you're, a, you're a bona fide scientist. You've done all your papers and you're like, man, I'm tired of like looking everywhere for everything. I'm going to spend my next year and a half compiling all of this and then putting it out there but you as the expert have to know the material well enough to read through it and then take the the findings and compare them and contrast them and say here's you know generally we think this but this paper dissents and then this paper dissents but then all these papers provide this evidence for that so ultimately it's likely that this is here you know Hmm. so it it, it's not like it, it comes out like hey here's the annual review it's more like 
when something it finds, when some scientist finds that there's a need for this, they will go and do this paper. I see. So this is uh, essentially was written because they're like, hey, in modern day uh, the world, we are dealing with climate change, and people are saying here and there that different. Um, tree lines are migrating either up to higher elevations or further north and or further north or further south okay um so essentially the tundra is becoming a treed space in, mm. instead of just you know a uh, flat land with only shrubs and, and herbs and things like that yeah so if everyone's saying that basically they wrote this paper to say hey here it looks like this is happening there, there are all these papers documenting this across the entire world and here's what's going on so they talk in this results and discussion section, basically what the findings are that people say are keeping trees from growing up higher. And the big thing they note is that tree growth requires a minimum growing season length of at least 94 days, as defined by all days having an average daily temperature of greater than 9 degrees Celsius. Okay. So, 9 degrees Celsius, I'm sorry, 0. 0.9 degrees Celsius is like oh, just above 0. freezing. Nine. Okay. Yeah, just right above freezing. Yeah. So, that is basically them saying this tree, uh, in order for trees to grow, you have to have more than freezing or warmer temperatures than freezing for at least 94 days. Okay. 94 Mo consecutive days. It doesn't say consecutive, it says at least 94 days. So, I would bet oh. that it would be. Early in spring, you get one day, and then maybe three days or below that. But then after that, you start getting two or three days in a row. Then there's mm. maybe one day below it. Then I there's see. more. So once it kind of becomes aggregate, you probably get more in the middle. That's going to be consecutive days, and then on either end of that time frame, you're going to get days that are kind of interspersed. I got you. of the growing season. Okay. So anyway, the big thing that they. Uh, they talk about is that it depends on where you are in the world, how high your mountains are and how much water you have. And this is the thing that I thought was really, really interesting is that they list a bunch of different things. Uh, average temperature is one of them that influences tree line position. But the other thing is the uh, timing of the growing season. Um, other things include the uh, factors such as um, is there adequate snow protection on the tree? So mm. basically, if it's covered in snow during wintertime, it doesn't get blasted by ice when winds come through. It's also somewhat um, protected by desiccating winds that come over and just rip all of the moisture out of a leaf. Although it's also not photosynthesizing during that period, Exactly, right? but it would be too cold anyway. So if it's, oh, it if needs it's below freezing. Oh, it needs worth. Oh, the growth period is when it starts photosynthesizing. Yes, exactly. So in the oh. dormant period, if it's covered in snow, it's like insulated. It's like, I'm so warm and toasty down here. This is so lovely. And it doesn't need to photosynthesize during those periods. Yeah, it's a, there's a lot okay. that goes into it. The rest of this list is huge. It says uh, insufficient effective temperature, some and length of growing season, lack of precipitation, competition, incoming solar radiation, and the permafrost depth of the active soil layer extreme soil temperatures moisture availability fires frost occurring during the growing season growing season high wind speeds a bunch of stuff like so these are all the going. conditions that are needed for it to grow yes and it's either the it's the thing that has an influence on it so let's take uh oregon here for instance okay. we have tree lines at all the the high mountains that we have and what mostly is causing that is that as you go higher higher and higher you get temperatures that are lower and lower for longer periods of time. So first off, a tree seedling, let's say seed lands there, starts to grow in this nice little cubby. As it comes out, if there's not enough 
warm temperatures for that plant to actually grow and significantly put roots on and mm-hmm. get taller, then sometimes it'll just be covered in snow the whole year round. It'll never photosynthesize and it will die. Mm. It could get past that and start growing up above where the snow melts, but then the winds will come through and completely desiccate it and it won't have enough water in that area because it maybe it drains out too quickly or it's too rocky so there's no water there to begin with other than right when the snow is melting but then you also get it's just too moving like the whole soils are not stable so landslides come through all the time or like the rocks are slowly moving or they're too big so you can't like find your way down to where there is sunlight because the rocks you fall in like this giant crevice you know so there's all these like Hmm. weird different things that happen but then in a uh, Mount uh, um, Catadine in uh, Maine, it's where the ATC, or yeah, no, 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 AT, the Appalachian Trail ends. Um, you walk all the way up and you go to that last mountain in Maine. Apparently, it has never registered a temperature above 70 degrees at the top of that mountain. Oh, wow. Not a single time. And that is like, that's why there's a tree line there. It's way too cold, way too often. Yeah. So no trees grew up there, but the top of it is like, 5,000 feet, 6,000 feet. Like it's, Hmm. it's super low. We have trees on Mount hood that grow all the way up to like 7,000 feet. The bristle cones in California grow at 11 or 12,000 feet, 13,000 feet. And right here we're dealing with trees that grow at 16,000 feet in the Andes. So that mountain in Maine is just colder than our mountain here. Essentially. So it has a lower tree line. The tree line is just a little bit lower. Okay. So all these different things come together and they affect um, where tree lines are. So in certain places in like Scotland, it's like a thousand feet or something like that. Mm. Like it's really low, but they're high in latitude. Oh, right. So anyway. Okay. It's very complicated, right? Yeah. It's like all these little, it's like a little abacus, like all these little numbers sliding back and forth. Just constantly moving it around. Yeah. But apparently the big one essentially is how much water water do you have sure. and how hot it is it okay so in the andes they actually have so it's in the southern hemisphere so here the south side of a hill or a slope gets more direct sunlight than the north side mm. because the sun comes at it at a little bit of an angle okay so if you picture the the earth the equator the sun is hitting it directly yeah but then as you go further and further north the light actually is shining at a certain angle that hits the southern slopes more directly and if you're in the southern hemisphere it's the exact opposite okay so in that exact opposite way on the north slopes in the south it's just a little bit warmer because it's a little bit warmer you find more polylepis trees on Mm. the on the north slopes in the andes because the temperatures are just a little bit higher so you get a little bit longer growing season and the trees can get a little bit taller and actually get a, a good good foothold so the right? tree the tree line will kind of change depending on where on the mountain you are yeah exactly okay. and so polylepis grows in like ravines and like little rocky places that are a little bit more uh condensed and, and kind of uh shaded from all these not shaded but protected from these different elements and so people are like well okay so we can we can figure this out and if you're trying to figure out where a polylepis grows they generally will always grow on like these very specific spots like above uh 4,000 feet, but less than, or 4,000 meters, but less than 4,200 meters in like the humid eastern side of the Andes. But mm. then over 5,000 meters on more arid volcanoes in the Cordillera area or on different mountain slopes. 
So you end up finding like these these specific changes in certain species grow in certain areas, uh, whether that's north or south, like along the gradient of the whole Andes Mountains, yeah. which for those of you who don't know, they essentially run the entire spine of South America. And so these trees will grow up there, but they're so disjunct in where they are, and they're above this natural tree line where this guy, this old guy, uh, Ellensburg was like, this isn't, there's, there's, this doesn't make any sense. If we take all of the different uh, ideas and all these different factors, this abacus that you just described, and we put them together, the math comes out that there should be more of these trees everywhere where there's a bunch of places that they're not growing. So that is the big question. That is the big Why question. Why aren't they growing where they should be? Exactly. And or where what, they could be. Precisely. And what this guy came up with is he basically said, honestly, it's it's people. People have been here for such a long period of time. Yeah. They've either been cutting it for fuel wood. They've been cutting it to make, uh, actually in the 1800s, mines, mine shafts, like holding up oh. a, uh, a mine so it doesn't collapse on wow. you. Um, but also, they would have animals come up and graze over there, the, the famous for alpacas and different animals mm-hmm. like that. So these forests apparently have been getting decimated. They'd also light fires, and those fires would kill all these trees, but it would keep open habitat for game animals. And because the trees grow so slowly, it's uh-huh. not like the next year they'll put on a new new roots, new shoots, and yeah. and reforest themselves. Yeah, exactly. And okay, but apparently, oh, wow. people went insane they're like you're crazy man there's no way people could do this there's no way that the this kind of um continent-wide differences in where these trees are growing yeah is because of people and then they just they they ripped him apart a bunch of criticism mm. but as it turns out the evidence supports this idea yeah. because if they were right all the people who are critiquing uh ellensburg then there would be trees everywhere because there are not trees everywhere and because people have been interacting with these ecosystems for million or thousands of years. I always want to say millions of years because I think in tree terms and I realize <laughs> you know, humans have not been there that long. Probably only about 20,000 years. You have, to, you have to convert tree years to human <laughs> yeah. years. It's very difficult for me. I really have a hard time with it. Um, but where, do, where do dog years fit in? Oh, geez. I don't even... I, my, I can't do that kind of compound math. It's just too much. But yeah, so it's, it's kind of an interesting, an interesting thing where people have been interacting with this for so long in such certain ways. Yeah. Whether that be uh, directly cutting the trees down or indirectly lighting fires to keep the habitat better for them or just having fires that work better for the things that they wanted, say maize planting or for growing any other kind of crop. Potatoes, famously, uh, are from this area, wild potatoes. Mm. So it's uh, it's just one of those things that I, I never quite thought about. And I'm sure that we here in the United States, the Western United States, and everywhere else in the world where there are these kinds of tree lines it is a hugely uh, environmentally affected place. Mm. But people, especially if people live up at those high elevation areas, just like um, in Tibet, where you have people that live at these high elevations affecting different things and having animals and crops at these high elevations, they certainly have probably had an effect on, as to where this tree line is. Right. And that, to me, is so, so fascinating because we always give, uh, like, birds an example. We've talked about the Clark's Nutcracker yeah. with the whitebark pine as well as the um, 
bristlecone pine, they affect where that tree grows because they plant the seed in different places. Whereas people may affect where trees go because we light fires and that will move them around and cause these disjunct populations, which I always found like so fascinating where this is like, what? We, we affected the entire distribution of a species of tree. Now, because we've cut so many down, a bunch of them are, uh, bunch of these forests are endangered. The trees are, are under threat. And of course, people are planting them back, which is really nice. So, Casey, what do you think about, you know, we, you and I have opinions on, like, corporations, like, uh-huh. clear-cutting for lim- tum- I almost said limber and then tumber. <laughs> Timber and lumber. That's <laughs> what I meant to say. Limber and tumber. <laughs> but the Andean paper tree is not necessarily being affected by corporations. It's, yeah. be, it's being affected by indigenous people. Uh-huh. So, what is your take on, uh, is, that, is that a positive or a yeah. negative or a neutrality Ooh. for you? You know... What it what it says to me is is one thing. First off, in a in a real realist sense, um, there is this romantic notion of indigenous people being like this uh, these stewards of the land, and they have all of these like high minded ideals of taking care of the environment mm-hmm. and. It's just not true, and I don't mean to take it away from uh, their experience because they, more than anyone else, have lived within their ecosystem. Yeah. But anything that lives within an ecosystem has an effect of on course, that ecosystem. Yeah. So that effect, at some point, probably before mines were built in the Andes, that was probably in pretty good balance, where mm. these people that lived up there had to migrate. They couldn't live up there all the time. So they would migrate down to lower elevations when it got too cold, then move back up. I see. So there is at least a balance is, is what I would assume would exist where the, these ecosystems were treated the same for so long that they, they balanced themselves out into a certain situation. And that's kind of the big difference. The indigenous uses of things were specific and they were done in a way that was as best as they could. Their technology perhaps wasn't, you know, they didn't have the chainsaw, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. They didn't have metal to begin with to try and do these kinds of huge cuts. Um, so in that case, it's like, yeah, great. That's actually, that, that seems like a nice use. You have a resource, you're definitely going to use it. But then when you bring in kind of the economies of the colonizing world, then that gets pushed to overdrive. Uh, I'm reading a book right now called the golden spruce. The indigenous people cut down and killed all the, a bunch of species of animals and plants because they're like, yeah, well, we'll make a bunch of money on this. And if they didn't do it, someone else was going to do it. So right. it, you get this weird system. I don't know, Alex, it's very complicated, but I would say, you know, trying to tamp down that idea of sort of the romantic kind of ideal idealization of this perfect unity, you know, uh, an avatar like world, Mm -hmm. then if I kind of push that away, then I say, no, they were using it in a way that at least was imbalanced because if they didn't, they would have perished as well. Sure. Because they would have, their, their, the resource would have been used up. Yeah. What do you think? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and there you have it, the hot take from Alex <laughs> <laughs> That is most of my opinions. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm still processing it. I'm still absorbing. I can't, I honestly, I can't, I can't make a, a yeah. statement uh, 
that soon after learning information. Gotcha. I don't know. Well, my my other the thing that I thought about is here in the Willamette Valley, for instance. Yeah. Um, it has famously had fires uh, burned through it by the native peoples here before the colonists came. Yeah. Because that was how they a kept down things like poison oak. Less poison oak was there. They kept it open for the plants that they would eat. Camas bulbs is a great example. And they would keep it open for their game animals to use this big, wide, open prairie kind of space. And it benefited the trees, too, right? It did. The oak tree was, like, dominant in this area because there was nothing else to compete with it. Yeah. Uh, But then, my thought is, if they did not start these fires if for whatever reason a, a no people came into the Willamette Valley to begin with it just didn't didn't happen would we not be seeing a a like ponderosa pine forest move down and mm. cover the entire valley with these big tall trees that can take the same conditions maybe fire comes through every now and then put on by lightning or something else would we actually be looking at an ecosystem that's completely different and we're now idealizing this oak ecosystem, because that's what used to be there with these other people. They all lived in balance, but there was fire in the ecosystem that was lit by mostly the native peoples in the area. Yeah. If they weren't there and there were no fires, the ecosystem is different. We'd still idealize that old ecosystem, most likely. So it's a weird kind of mm. like, uh, uh, what is it? It's a counterfactual, I think is what it is. And you think like, well, what would happen if this didn't happen? And you like think through that kind of scenario. Right. So I don't know. It's it's a It's... It, it makes me wonder if the um, the whole if we think back to what we talked about last week, where humans are not a part of nature, where it's not just a human affected nature, therefore it's changed, therefore it's bad or yeah. it's different or whatever it is, then it's all good. Like we just have to look at it as like we are still another impact, another another thing affecting the system. And the system is just evolving again, just as it always does. So in that case, I don't think it's bad. I think it's maybe bad that the the impact has become way more intense over the last two to three hundred years. Yeah, that could be that could be a bad thing if you're trying to say, yeah, I kind of like the way it was. But in the scheme of we're all a part of this, like it's all we we are one thing, then it's bad that we're using our technology to destroy it. And not giving the polylepis tree the 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 right to live just because it is a thing that lives, you know what I mean? But that all the, the only I mean, all of this like the imbalance started post Spanish, right? Most likely, yeah. Okay, so I, mean, I guess we can just. It's very easy to blame colonization. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah, so maybe we'll just we'll just do it there and yeah. call it good. But one thing before we go, uh before talking about just the human uh the human things that these forests interacted with, yeah. they also interacted with what I called a uh, a support crew of animals. Not support crew. They supported a crew of animals. Oh, wow. And I just have to read them because as I was reading through this list, um th- it became a little bit more like like exotic in a really fun way. Hmm. So I'll start with the Andean condor, which is very similar to the, um, the California condor, like a gigantic bird yeah. that is more or less a vulture kind of thing. Um, Isn't that the bird with the biggest wingspan? I think so, yeah. It's either that or the um, the wandering albatross. One of the two are Ooh. gigantic like that. But then there's the uh, the Cochabamba mountain finch, which I thought was beautiful. Ooh. The royal Synclodes, which is, or Synclodes, I think it's Synclodes, uh-huh. which is another, another little bird. Um, but then there's the black, black-breasted puff leg. 
Is that a bird? That's a bird, I think. <laughs> I can't imagine what I want to know. I did want to look him up because I just like the idea of thinking of a, of thinking of a puff leg. But then uh, there's the, the red-tailed comet, which is pretty cool. The ash-breasted tit tyrant. It's a tit tyrant. Wow. What is a tit tyrant? It's like a, there's a dash. So it's like, it's like I, it makes me think that the tyrant is being modified by the tit. So it's a tyrant that's tit-like. It's a tit tyrant. <laughs> Who's going to say it is a tyrant to the tits? Yeah, I, I assume so. Then there's the marbled four-eyed frog, which sounds pretty cool. Wow. But I, I assume it just wears glasses, and that's pretty derogatory. The Andean mountain cat. And then the spectacled bear, Casey. another. See the spectacled bear. It gets the it gets the 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 more proper name for wearing glasses. So what's the difference? Why are they being so mean to the frog and not the bear? By the way, this four-eyed frog, <laughs> you gotta look it up. Okay, it, it I has will. it has a, a a little what look like a little pair of eyes on its like hips. Oh, okay, all on right. It's rump. Well, the last the last leg or the last one that I'm really glad they left to the end. It's a screaming hairy armadillo. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> so I'm reading through this. I'm like, man, we really need these forests to stick around. I <laughs> the cast of characters. I need to go to an Andean petting zoo. This sounds incredible. <laughs> yeah. Hi, welcome to screaming hairy armadillos uh, <laughs> viewing area. You have to wear earplugs in that segment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Put on. On big things. <laughs> uh, Casey, I think it's a great time for our review of the Andean paper tree. Here's how it goes. We're going to give it some final thoughts on this tree and then give it a rating of 0 to 10 golden cones of honor as our resident hmm. screaming ar- armadillo. Yeah. As our resident <laughs> screaming armadillo, we'll begin with you. Oh, man. I, I just want to hear what they're like. Like, what if you spook one? You know? <laughs> like, that's really what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh Jesus! There's a screaming armadillo over there. Oh, I love oh, goats that scream. Yeah, I saw. I saw when I first looked up screaming. Yeah, it, it goat came up. Oh but, yeah. Yeah, I decided to look for look for this. It's a real horrendous sound. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Uh, I hope you never run into a horde of them like that meet each other and they try to communicate. Yeah. It's just a screaming goat yelling Ugh. at a screaming armadillo. That's so <laughs> freaky. That's so metal, man. Makes me think of Black Phillip. <laughs> Whatever that means, Alex. It's from The Witch. Uh-huh. That's a horror movie a few years ago. They had a they have a they have a, a goat and they named it Black Philip. It's a black goat. Oh, okay, and it yeah. It is the devil incarnate. Oh, it's a great movie, Casey. I like this anyway. Black Philip. Wow, that that is a rump of a frog. Yeah, man. Honestly, ten out of ten golden cones of honor for the <laughs> four eyed frog. You know what? I'm going to call it the spectacled frog hey, because there I think you go. that's a pr- more proper term. But anyway, sorry, sorry. Let's get back to it. We're talking you know, about... Some, someday we will raise enough money to, to get this frog contact lenses. <laughs> we really will. But until then, we're just going to have to let it, you know, look you right in both <laughs> eyes at the same time. Oh, uh. <laughs> right. We're talking about the uh, the polylepis, racemosa, the, uh, the tree that is otherwise known as the Andean paper tree. I think that it's just a spectacular tree. Yeah. The big thing that I think is really fascinating about it is that it grows at like wild, wildly high amount of, of like heights, uh, 14.3 meters, 15.9 meters uh, at like really high elevations, like at well over 4,000 feet, you're still going to get a tree that it's like 50 feet tall. Yeah. That's amazing to me. Like, I just am stunned by that. And they are, they're apparently the, some of the strongest trees. This is a, it's got to be a superlative tree for being the 
highest elevation or the tree, the broadleaf tree that grows at the highest elevation, yeah. the only thing that beats it is apparently the Tibetan juniper. Oh, wow. It's the only tree that grows higher than this, which I thought was really cool. And that one is like mind-blowingly small as well. Like they, they should barely count as a tree. But, you know... I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna say that the, I'm gonna count it as a tree, even though of it's course. a very, very small tree at the highest elevations, because they're like the crumults forms, where they're like, like literally laying on the mountainside, being like, "Wind, go away! Oh my Just God. go right over me." Still a tree. Still a tree. So I'm gonna give the Andean paper tree all of them because uh, I think they can all kind of count. I had to pick one species, sure, but they all kind of just grow in different ways and different elevations as you go north and south along the the mountain range. Yeah, I'm gonna give it like an 8.2. Wow, very nice. It's a beautiful tree, and they grow in such a wild, amazing place, and they are they host a screaming armadillo, yeah, and a puff leg. How can you how can you fall the tree for doing that? I can't, Casey. 8.2 Golden yeah. Cones of Honor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the Andean paper tree from Casey Clapp. Well, Alex, what uh, what do you think here? This is I mean, this is a big conversation. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, I think it's facts. a I think it's a great tree. I think it's a great looking tree. Yeah. I always respect a tree that has a high uh, a high number of uh, why would you grow thereness? <laughs> yeah. Why would you live thereness? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you think it gets a lot of sleep with the armadillos around? No, yeah, I think I think it's not. probably evolved to uh, to not have ears. Oh, or how interesting! Sense vibration. I see. It's just a deaf tree with a huge <laughs> smile on its face. <laughs> Finally, I rest. <laughs> it took me millions of years, but I can't hear a damn thing. Oh God. Um. Yeah, I love its. I love its. Uh, what it has going on with the wildlife around there. Mm-hmm. Which we didn't do a Croson's homegrown trivia, but I I now I'm kind of kicking myself and wish I had wishing uh, I had okay because it's maybe we'll do maybe we'll do a little bonus something Ooh, here or there yeah okay um it is you know I I think like a paper bark maple yeah is like kind of cool yeah okay this takes that to a completely different mm, level good point this is the ultimate paper bark yeah. Um, this is like the grandfather of the grandfather of the paper bark. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm feeling an 8.1. Ooh, that's a, this is a, a close, we almost got the same there. Yeah. That's, okay. That's, that's where I'm landing with this thing. I think it's a really cool tree. I would of course love to see them someday. Yeah. But it's very unlikely. I would actually, I've always wanted to hike to Machu, Machu Picchu. Oh Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming they grow around there. They do specifically. Yeah. Yes. So and higher up, in fact, and that would be a nice bonus. I get to see some ruins and I get to see the Indian paper tree. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe someday I will see it and I, I give it an 8.1. Hey, 8.1. That's a pretty, that's a pretty good score. Yeah. Not well, very, very well deserved. Yeah. Towards our, our friend, uh, Ms. Killingsworth. Yes. Thank you for sending us this tree. Uh, now that we've had the time to actually send it in and we've we've chosen a species, how do you think it would do on the uh, Tournament of Champion Trees? I honestly think it would it would have totally... It would have killed. Yeah, I think it would have. Casey, that was our review of the Indian Paper Tree. It's time for our completely arbitrary Q and A. This week's question is from Gillian. Gillian asks... My father and I 
have a few questions about ash trees. Ooh. We have a few questions here. Well, we're gonna we're gonna try to consolidate into one okay. mega question. All right, all right. You're just gonna ask it entirely. I'm gonna read verbatim. Okay. What Gillian says right. here, considering the fact that the population has been greatly harmed by the emerald ash borer. We were wondering what regular people like us could do about it. Ugh. Do you think that planting more of the trees would be wise, okay. or would that simply encourage the population of the beetle? Mm-hmm. And that is what I'll ask you, Casey. Alex, this is a very timely question. How so? Oh, are emerald ash borers uh, up? They are up. Stock is up. Stock is up. If you want to bet against ash trees, now's the time. Yeah, bummer. Yeah, so our old friend uh, loves tamaracks. Uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) Is a a green industry worker, I think at the minimum, um, up in Quebec uh, last time we talked. It turns out uh, the reason that that loves tamaracks, Alex, like basically took it went off social media uh was that uh they were destroying dead ash trees that had been completely decimated by the emerald ash borer. they went off to fight the war yeah but then also were scarred by and was like wow you, you kill so many ash trees and you realize this is pretty bad oh god places like chicago um had a bunch of trees growing and those were elm trees Dutch elm disease came through. All trees died. They said, well, what are we going to plant? Well, we've got a bunch of ash trees. Let's plant a bunch of ash trees. Perfect. All those ash trees grow up, and then boom, they all die. And there's photos you can go find on the internet of a uh, beautiful road day one, no ash, or Mm. no, no ash borer, gorgeous canopy. You go back a few days later, or a few years later, and every single tree is just completely just dead. And it just looks like a, it looks horrendous it's terrifying yeah so are there are there any are there any like person-to-person things that you and i can do as not well you're an industry professional but i'm not uh i guess i sort of am yeah i think you are you made it there congratulations (laughs) uh can do the average person can do to prevent or help the cause against emerald ash borer yes and that is don't move firewood around oh right if you know what uh if you know what kind of species of tree it is if it's kiln dried you buy it at some place not you know joe on the side of the road says firewood here buy it yeah if you are going and buying firewood kiln dried and it is you know, essentially certified bug free. Feel free. Kiln dry just means that they dry it to a certain dryness level. Yeah. And that will generally kill all of the insects and grubs that are inside of it. In because a kiln. In a kiln, yeah, yeah. Um, so in this way, what ha- or if you don't do that, then the the insect bores in and then it lays its eggs. Then those eggs will then hatch and become little grubs that'll eat inside the tree and girdle it just like a bark beetle. Mm. It is essentially a bark beetle. And that will then, A, kill the tree, but then the grubs will overwinter inside the tree. Then the next year, they will pop out with these D-shaped holes and then they will fly away. So if you cut that tree down when it's dying, you're like, oh, my tree's dying. Cool, I'm just going to cut it down, chop it all up, take it over uh, to your neighbor's house. They drive it to their neighbor's house. They tell their friend, oh, yeah, take it with you as you go across the Rocky Mountains and you're going to go camp in Oregon. Let's say maybe around Forest Grove. They take their logs over there. They set them out there. They say, oh, I actually don't need them. I'm just going to set them on the side of my uh, my house. Then all those insects, once uh, springtime comes and starts getting warmed up, they're like, hey, cool, it's time to go. They eat out of that wood and then they Mm. go disperse and that is exactly what happened for the first time this summer this spring they found emerald ash borer in oregon at forest grove 
which is the first time they found it, I believe, west of the Rocky Mountains. <gasps> so somebody somebody brought it over. Yeah, in yeah, their firewood. Yeah, most likely. That's the that's the the most likely situation. Wow. So you can do that. The other thing you can do is pay attention to your ash trees. Um, ash trees, for those of you who don't know, have bark that is very cross hatched. It looks like a bunch of X's all the way around it. They're oppositely arranged with pinnately compound leaves, and they have these long single samara seeds that come down on the um, the seed-bearing trees. They are dioecious. Mm. Um, so if you see a tree that is dying back, and at, from where it dies back, it has a bunch of like weird sprouts coming out that look really unhealthy, those are trees that probably have the emerald ash borer in it. Mm. Look for little D-shaped exit holes from those trees to see if the insect has already left. You'd see those right now if it is a tree that's half dying. D-shaped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because okay. they, they, as they crawl out, the top of them is a little bit curved and yeah. their bottom is very flat. So I when see. they chew out, they have that D-shaped thing. Creepy. Yeah. It is. It's the worst. And they will kill ash trees 99%. Like, straight up. They'll kill almost every single tree that they find. And that, that of course, is a huge problem. We have Oregon ash here. We also have plenty of different species of ash trees growing in our urban areas and we've been waiting for this to come there's no reason it shouldn't have already been here except apparently uh we had this moratorium on moving moving firewood mm-hmm. and then uh the Biden administration or whoever underneath the Biden underneath the Biden administration, um, I think last year, the year before, basically just said, hey, we don't need to worry about this moratorium anymore. And they took it off. And then lo and behold, two years later, now we got it. <laughs> almost immediately. Ugh, it's so sad. This wow. is honestly this is one of the things that's taken a long time to like sink in. And every time I pass an ash tree now, I'm just like, oh, your time is severely limited. Wow. It's truly sad. And it's it's one of those things where you know how like people can be a little bit uh outrageous about things. Not outrageous, what am I thinking? Um uh, sensational. Yeah. This the the reality matches up to the sensationalistness of it. Oh wow. Yeah. So ninety nine percent of all the ash trees are probably gonna die within, you know, the next couple of years. They found this tree first <laughs> in Detroit in two thousand two to put that all in uh in uh, perspective took 20 years for this whole the whole continent to essentially get got Holy by this species shit. which is like a half an inch long and like a quarter of an inch wide prolific little guys yeah so anyway <clears throat> that's what you can do alex don't move firewood report it um, if you see an ash that's struggling and you can see that there's something going wrong with it report it to your local um extension service or report it to your local um uh invasive species um organization i'll put we'll put a oregon has one we'll put a link uh in this episode great oh man well anyway. with that thank you gillian for your question yeah <sighs> <laughs> if you have a question about trees maybe a less a depressing nice one, one <laughs> email us at arbitrarypod at gmail.com it's a-r-b-o-r-t-r-a-r-y pod uh, or join us on instagram at arbitrarypod and if you want to support this podcast, mm-hmm. join the Patreon, patreon.com slash arbitrarypod. Join the Arboretum for two bonus episodes a month or the Cone of the Month Club for a unique die-cut cone sticker illustrated by an independent artist every single month. Casey Clapp. Yes, sir. Thank you for uh, thank you for this, this tale of this Indian paper tree. Yes, uh, you are welcome. Thanks for listening and having good perspectives. Well, it's my pleasure. My yeah. perspective of, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that and you helped, uh, you helped us decide what exactly a, a high alpine 
shrubland forest counts as. That's right. So Those I are think, shrublands. Yeah, I think that counts. I think that's. Or is, is it shrublin like Dublin? Ooh, I think it's. I think it's shrublands. Okay. So I, yeah, I don't think we can quite go uh, do like shrubland. But honestly, it'd be kind of fun. Now, maybe if, if we go up there and live for a while, we can call ourselves uh, Shrubliners. Um, in this podcast, we make our own reality. That's Casey. exactly right, Alex. And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Completely Arbitrary. We will see you next time. Goodbye. Au revoir. Completely Arbitrary is produced by Alex Croson and Casey Clapp. Our artwork is by Jillian Barthold, and our music is by Aves and the Mini Vandals. And you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash arbitrarypod. And find additional readings at completelyarbitrary.com. Thanks for listening. 